I'll go to Psalms. We'll do 150 of those instead of 31 Proverbs. But uh, we're, we're going to begin with Proverbs now. Uh, I did Proverbs 1, and again, I, I, will, I want you to know that rather than uh, a lot of the Proverbs go back and cover the same ground, adding just a little twist uh, to, uh, to maybe the subject that, that uh, Solomon is writing on under the inspiration of God. That's how God operates. And, and Solomon, being the wisest man in the world, uh, had the inspiration of God in all of this. And if you are able to put all these together, if somehow you could listen to all of these one right after the other, you would see a wonderful theme that began to, uh, to break out of all this teaching. And tonight we're going to start with Proverbs 12.3. A man shall not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous shall not be moved. A man shall not be established by wickedness but the root of the righteous shall not be moved every man and I brought this out a little bit last week just touching on this one every man woman and family would like to be settled and they would like to be successful I believe that is a desire for each and every person they want to be securely planted and prosperous into the future that's what all of us should desire They want to increase and improve over time. But wickedness of any sort causes a problem. It'll cause a family, a person to decay. It'll cause a family to disappear. Only righteousness can preserve and establish a man or a family permanently. Now this is interesting because if you could historically go back and look at people that started out well, you could see that they started out well, they, uh, they improved, they were established, they, they did good things, they had good results. And then all of a sudden, something begins to happen to that family. And before long, that family is no longer the important family they once were. In fact, you can't even find that family name any longer. And that is because something happened. There was a decay because sin got into it and they began to live the wrong kind of life. And as a result, decay took hold and completely took that family out of the picture. It happens, and it happens more than most people realize. So what is the outlook for, and this is the question, what is the outlook for you and your family? If there is sin in either, in either one, the Lord will root one or both out and he will destroy it the Lord blesses and honors righteousness but and I'm going to give you a scripture for this I'm going to read it. it's going to come up uh, well I don't know if I have this one for you to bring up but I'm going to read Psalm 18:26 in just a moment uh, but he will root these out and the righteous uh, the, the our, our righteous God blesses and honors righteousness but but he will be forward or uh, this is the interesting part Forward, and I described this to you, but the, the psalmist said that God will be forward to the forward. Now, forward means distorted, crooked, and false. Hard to believe that God would be that way. Now, look, this is a psalm. And this gives you, though, it's, you can say, well, it's not a New Testament. This gives you the mind of God on the subject. God was thinking that way. So look at this. Look at Psalm 18, 26. With the pure... They will show thyself with the pure, thy will show thyself pure. With the forward, thy will show thyself forward. It goes on above there and it says, with the merciful, he will show himself merciful. So, so whatever we are towards people and towards God, that's how God 
will show himself to us. So he will show himself in a distorted manner. Now think about what I'm saying. If you've got any insight on this, you'll pick this up. Why is it that some people go off the deep end? They begin to believe some kind of silly doctrine, silly concept about God. Did they start getting distorted? And if, as a result of them being distorted, or forward if you would, God becomes that way to them. Why is it that we've got all the religions in the world, and some of them are so complex and crazy that you can't even believe they exist, but is there a reason for that? We, we kind of say, well, well, man does it. You know, he does do that, but is it possible because of man's distortion of God that God distorts himself to man? That's what the Scripture says, that he can be crooked to the crooked, he can be false to the false. If a person, I will take this one step further, if a man of God uses a pulpit for his own gain, only his own gain, then that man is being crooked. And then that means God will be crooked to that man. How many times, if you've been around any length of time, you have seen men that have fallen from grace. And you wonder, what happened to that person? How could they do that? It can start with one thing, one small thing. And before long, God becomes crooked to that person. Just a thought. Just a thought. Look at Abraham and Lot. They made choices. Lot chose financial advantage over holiness by pitching his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham chose peace in the leftovers. But what happened? Lot lost everything and ended up in a cave with two profane and pregnant daughters. Abraham ended up the rich father of Israel and Jesus Christ. So what a difference that was. What a difference looking at what, what a man was willing to take leftovers, but in the, at the end result of it all, he became the most important man. And look what happened to Lot. Eli was Israel's high priest. His family could have been priests forever, but he would not stop his perverse sons. What did the Lord say? He said this, for I have told him that I will, in fact, it's 1 Samuel 3, 13. It'll come up behind me. He said, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. David was a neglected eighth son, but the Lord rooted Saul out and established David and his sons as a dynasty in Israel. His son sits on the throne of the universe today. This was the eighth son, the unimportant one, David. And because of that, the son of David sits on the very throne of the universe today. Think about some of the, the people throughout the Scripture that didn't seem like much, that God began to elevate them because he saw something good. He saw the humility. He saw the ability to take the lower seat, if you please. He'd seen that kind of ability in them. As a result, he elevated them to a high place. So what does that tell us? What does it tell us about us? What does it tell us about our family? It tells us that we need to focus on what is important and leave some of these unimportant things out of the equation. And if we don't do that, we will find ourselves in some of the places that I have just talked about. We'll become the Eli's. We'll become those that are forward who, who begin to believe a lie and believe the crooked. And God becomes that to us. 
But if we will elevate him above everything else, above ourselves, if we will decide that Jesus Christ is not only going to sit on the throne of the universe, but he's going to sit on the throne in our hearts, then we can find ourselves in a position that is greater than we could ever have imagined. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. David wrote this. He said, I've seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. In Psalm 37, Alexander the Great thought he was invincible, but he was dead at age 32. In a few years, every relative and descendant of Alexander the Great were dead. Every one of them. God rooted him out of the earth. No matter how the wicked do estate planning, and they can do a lot of it, God will destroy him and his seed. No matter how weak the righteous may appear, God will preserve his house and his seed forever. And I believe this about the righteous. I believe this. I've seen this. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemy. Psalm 112, 6 through 8. Proverbs 12, verse 9. I want you to listen very carefully. Watch this. It's going to come up behind me. I want you to look at this proverb. He that is despised and hath a servant is better than he that honoreth himself and lacketh bread. Look at it. He that is despised and has a servant is better than he that honoreth himself and lacketh bread. That's a strange word, don't you think? Let me look at that. He that is despised and hath a servant despised and has a servant is better than he that honoreth himself and lacketh bread stupid silly words that have a lot of wisdom if you'll follow them and understand them strange words it comes down to this your public image is worth little so especially especially in a world crazy about image over substance pretense over character words over performance this proverb is very relevant Concern about what others think is the pride of life. Living godly and comfortably with your family is wisdom and success. Everybody say wisdom and success with me. Let's all say it together. Wisdom and success. Wisdom and success. Look at 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a great little scripture, isn't it? Being godly and content with that godliness is great gain. Let's look at two men here. The first, man is despised by the world. He does not make the splashy, splashy show the world value. He, he doesn't do that or his values. He is simply a hard-working man who prefers peace and quiet to, uh, at home to any worldly party or popularity. Now, by hard work, he's achieved a modest measure of comfort and success. And he has a servant for his companionship and his labor. He has this. Let's look at the second man. Now, this second man, he's popular, he's flashy, always seeking the approval and limelight of the world. 
He moves into popular circles in town, presents himself as charming and successful wherever he can. But his image is all show. For he's basically broke. Okay? Especially if his debts were paid. Thinking work beneath him, he lives for his image alone. The simple honest man is better than the pretentious fool. Now Solomon saw men living for public image rather than working for the rewards of pleasure and security at home. He saw successful men humbled by God, unable to quit their former lifestyle and get a job. And he warned against images and encouraged contentment with life's modest successes. This is what he encouraged. More people live for image today than ever before. There is nothing like what people are looking for. You look at them out there. I, I don't, I, you know, I, I see some of these, these, these movie stars, but you see some of these women, and well, men too, trying to look like these duds. Duds and dudettes. I mean, they, they, they look at them. They got that look, you know. You know, the hair just right, the goatee, the, you know, all that. They, they're, they're, they're trying to look like something they're not. In fact, the person they're trying to look like is not the person they're trying to look like because it's an image. And, and I guess they're trying to live uh, vicariously a life that they think that this movie star who goes around and shoots the bad guys, you know, they want to do that. I, I, I don't know, but it's the same way with, with this, uh, this, all these other people that they try to look like and women try to look like, like, uh, like Paris Hilton and... and and Lord, she's a skinny runt. I don't know why anybody would, you know. See, anyway, this is this is what people try to do. Solomon saw this, and, and you know, and and people today are doing the same thing. The media constantly exalts image. Peer pressure is powerful. Easy credit makes it possible to live above your means. And corrupt bankruptcy laws allow these pretenders to start over when debtors claim their assets. It's it's powerful, you know, folks. I, I should stop there for a while. I'm going to tell you this is how I feel about it. If you file bankruptcy, and there are some reasons, especially today in the health, if you file bankruptcy, let me put it this way, for anything outside of health care, if you just get out credit cards and you max credit cards out and then file bankruptcy on them and then go and start all over again and you're able to do it, there's something wrong with that picture. I understand the health care issue. There's something wrong with people going out and overspending and then filing bankruptcy, then starting all over again. You're not free of this till you pay the first batch off. I'm not got an amen. I'm going to get up here and jump off this to that. Maybe that'll make you say amen. You're not free of your debt till you pay your debt off. You're not free of your debt till you pay your debt off. I don't care if you have to pay $5 a year. You need to be paying something on what you owe. I'm sorry if that doesn't bear witness with everybody tonight because, you know, that's, uh, because that's just not, that's not appropriate or not, it's not uh, popular. You know, it's, it's popular now just to do and make whatever debt that you want to make and just go away and leave it, but it's still not right. And, you know, really what it comes right down to is the judge of all things is going to be the one that judges each and every one of us on what we've done in this life. And if we haven't taken care of some of those things that we need to take care of, there's a problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? That should not be the way things are. You know, and it's just because of image. 
True success is working hard, enjoying simple domestic pleasures, and living a contented and godly life. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. And that you study to be, look at this. People have to study to be quiet. You got this big book that's got blanks all over it. And you read it because there's nothing on it. That means you're quiet. I'm going to send certain people in the congregation a book with no words in it. And see, study to be quiet. And do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you may have lack of nothing. Notice that, lack of nothing. Modest possessions with love, peace, and righteousness are better than even wealth with trouble. Wise men ignore what the world thinks. They will not use foolish debt to buy clothes, cars, or houses beyond their means. They choose the lower seat in public life. Frequent divorces, substance dependency, and dysfunctional lives show the vanity of the rich and famous. Listen to this. It shows the vanity of the rich and famous. The lie of image does not pay, it destroys. The lie of image does not pay, it destroys. What God thinks of you is far more important than what the world thinks. Jesus despised and rejected of men sits on the right hand of God. He is God. And that's what the right hand of God means, that he has all power of God. Jesus was despised and rejected, and he was God in the flesh. Why should we think that we're, should, we're any, any better? Why should we think that? Stop and think about it. I just wrote a letter to the department heads today, and, and uh, I, may, I may hand it out to congregation later, first of the year. But I'm I, 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 looking back historically to the time, and I was talking about uh, anticipation, anticipating the sunset. And, and I was talking about the anticipation that some of our forefathers had. They anticipated the coming of the Lord. They anticipated the sunset, that, that short time uh, that, that, that the church was going to glow right before the Lord came. They were anticipating that. And at the time they anticipated it, they anticipated it because, most of them because life was so hard for them. You talk back, back in the 40s, you know, the 50s, uh, up into the 50s, life was difficult. Very, very difficult. Depression had a hold of people. It was very hard. And, and they, they had absolutely nothing, yet they had, and there was enough, you know, at the people at that time, most of them could, around this area, they could work the land and they could feed themselves. But they anticipated the coming of the Lord because of difficult times. On top of that, the early Pentecostals were persecuted. You know, I had, I had grandmothers and great aunts that were still lived in the time when they threw rotten eggs and tomatoes at Pentecostals. They would come into the church services and disrupt church services. Now we think we're persecuted, but we're not persecuted. Now it's all emotional. It's all, our problem is we're not having, we can't get enough. That we don't live within our means, and we call that persecution when we live in the best time that we've ever lived in, regardless of what's going on out there. We still live in the best time that we've ever lived in, and God is still taking care of his people. He is still taking care of his people, and we need to regard that. So what am I saying is this. They anticipated, but we live in a time. The Bible says it's a time that you think not, the Son of Man cometh. We live in that time. A lot of people right now would say, really, I don't want God to come because things are pretty good for me. We would prefer waiting when things got bad so we could be taken out of here. But God is not going to operate on our timetable. 
We need to live in anticipation, believing that he's going to come at any second and live accordingly. We should live righteously and godly in this present world the way that, that Titus said. We need to live it every day with anticipation, looking diligently towards, this, towards the eastern sky, even though we're living in the sunset of time. Looking for the coming of the Lord. And we live in that day now, and we cannot push that aside. We prefer thinking, well, when things get bad, I want the Lord to come. Listen, friend, it's not going to happen that way. Because I tell you when God's going to come, it's when everybody's got plenty and they're prosperous. There's going to be a Band-Aid put on all this before the Lord comes. All the bleeding's going to stop. There's going to be a Band-Aid placed on it. And everybody's going to, on all those, uh, you know, that come into the church and they, they just came into church because things are bad, they're going to drift away. And then the Lord's going to come. That's why you've got to be sure that you're anticipating every day the coming of the Lord. I don't know how I got on that, but I got on that. So we, we look at this. You know, this, this, it's all an image, and we've got to live above what we think. We must live above that. Look at Proverbs 12, verse 10. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. You're going to enjoy this one. But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. What is a good man? A good man is a merciful man. A gentle man. A kind man. He is ruled by pity and compassion. He cannot be mean, nor can he really be hard. But the wicked are cruel. And even their kindness is harsh, for they lack the tender, gentle spirit of the righteous who is concerned even for the animal. You're thinking, Robertson, can you possibly be saying this? You follow me. You better listen good. Both ears open. Ignore your sleepy spirit. They cannot be kind and merciful. They are like their master. Now, you know, murder from the beginning. This is the, this is the, uh, this is the wicked person. The wicked cannot be kind and merciful. They're like their master, a murderer from the beginning. Now, this proverb is not a pita advertisement. People eating tasty. I mean, people, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. I couldn't remember that. <laughs> All right. Follow me. The lesson is not the care of animals, but it's the illustration of compassion. And you need to follow this and, and, and watch this. While the Lord ordained merciful care of animals from the working ox to the bird in the nest. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 25 and 4 and 22, 6 and 7. He also, though, he also gave man dominion over them to work them, wear their skins, sacrifice them, and eat them. Genesis 1, 26, 3, 21, 4, and 4, 9, 1 through 4. A man may hunt honorably today, but, this is the, this is the motorboat part of it all, but, 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 but the torture of animals is profane. Now, we got this proverb, it's what it said, he cares for his beast, so you're going to have to just bear with me. In my early adulthood, and I've talked about it before, I was around, I was around a lot of animals. Cattle, hogs, horses, a lot of horses, a lot of horses. We, we, we were a cowboy family. My, my sister's still a cowgirl. She thinks she is. And, um, and they still want me to come down and mess with their horses, and I don't like them. 
I had to write. You know, whenever you're made to do something, you don't like it when you get older. That's what I was made to write, them nasty things. <clears throat> but I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of people, uh, a lot of horses. And I've also, also uh, through the years, I noted something, and that was the difference in men's character. And, and it was obvious. Uh, you can see this, and it's obvious by this proverb. You can see this proverb giving you insight on the character of a person. Some horses that I saw were well-fed. Ours always were well-fed. In fact, they were too fat to even get on. They were well-fed, and they were groomed. Others were undernourished and neglected. On hot days, some men that I used to ride with a lot, some men would walk, me included, would walk their horses up the hill. And, in fact, the horse I rode, she was so fat that, that she sweated more than I did, so I'm probably better off carrying her. You know, it was just about that way. Walk the horses up the area. See, you know, and, and some people I saw who would go up a hill and say the quickest way to kill a horse is run him uphill. And I've seen men actually do that, that would run, run them up a hill, whip them, beat them with rifle barrels. I've seen all this. And these were really pitiful-looking horses. And on top of that, on top of that, I've seen people who probably meant well who wanted to take the poor horse that looked bad and had skin and bones, and they stick it in a place about the size of this platform. And it wades mud up to its fetlocks. And, I, and, and, and still looks bad, nasty. And they're all doing it, you know, we're not sending this to the glue factory. We're going to take care of it. Which is the most honorable thing to do. We don't just shoot them. My Sisters, what's the matter with you? <laughs> you send them to the glue factory, get a little money for them. That's what you do. <laughs> you know, the lesson is this. Righteous men are tender, gentle, and compassionate and merciful, but the wicked are hard, harsh, inconsiderate, and cruel. A righteous man will bear the fruit of the Spirit, which includes tender-hearted gentleness. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 32. Ephesians 4, verse 32, and be a kind one to another. Tender-hearted. This is a great... One of those, there's one of those that I never can remember where it is, but I quote it all the time in my head. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. I constantly, that is, again, one of, one of my key scriptures. And any time that you, you begin to get a little harsh, you know, you want to get a little hard-hearted toward people, that one pops into my mind quite often. Be a kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. We, we must be forgive, forgiving, we must be compassionate. And let me just ask you this question. Are you compassionate in the sight of God, men? Look at yourself. Are you compassionate in the sight of God, men? Are you really? This is how we show our Father's character. And I taught about how we should acknowledge him as Father in the Lord's Prayer on Sunday morning. Uh, this is how we should do it. Uh, and, and think about what God does for us. He sends warming sunshine, nourish, nourishing rain, even on his enemies. Matthew 5.43. And the Lord, though great and dreadful in judgment, is a God full of compassion and tender mercies. His ordinance of the, of the Sabbath day, by the way, which is in the mind of God, even though you've got to remember the Sabbath was fulfilled in the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Ghost fell, the Sabbath was fulfilled. Because the Bible says in Isaiah 28, this is a rest and this is a refreshing. This is the rest. This is, but in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, he established the Sabbath is a rest even for the working animals. That's mercy. So we see the mind of God is merciful. 
in the Ten Commandments, even in the establishing of the Sabbath. Though we, as God's people, we have the Sabbath in our heart. It's a part of us. It is our rest. It is our refreshing. When I come to the church, when I come and worship God, I am getting that rest and refreshing of the Sabbath day. When I'm able to lift up holy hands, when I'm able to, to worship with abandon, I'm getting the rest and refreshing. God has given that. You Think about the mercy of the Spirit of God that dwells within our hearts. Think about what God has done for us. You have in you peace, righteousness, and joy that is a part of you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You come and you get fed at church time, but you still carry through the baptism of the Holy Ghost this wonderful power of God in your heart. That, my friend, is mercy like you could never, ever imagine. And, the, and your fondest memories you could, or fondest desires, you could never imagine what God has done for you. We wear it and we don't, we, we, we don't, really, we don't really realize what we have. We don't admire what we have. We don't, we don't really deal the way we should. We've got something that is greater than you could ever imagine. And you see, most of the people that have come out of the world still remember what it was like to be out there. But to now to know the peace and the joy and the righteousness that I have because one day I bowed at an altar, I came out with my hands uplifted, speaking in other tongues, and says, Spirit, give the others. Don't you take it for granted. Don't you take it for granted. Hallelujah. Oh, my God, my God. <clears throat> a righteous man is, a merciful, is merciful to himself. According to Proverbs eleven seventeen. He's merciful to animals, Genesis 24, 19 through 32. He's merciful to his wife, 1 Peter 3, 7. His children, Psalm 103, 13, Colossians 3, 21. And his enemies, Psalm 35 and 11. He will not foolishly afflict, punish, or trouble them, Galatians 6, 10. He will rather pamper himself, his animals, wife, children, and enemies with kindness. Now you think about what I just said. It starts with taking care of yourself as well because that's part of it. We should treat ourselves right as well. We should not, and, and you follow me, we shouldn't be, well, I'll get ahead of myself. Let me just move on. But the wicked are perverse. Their tender mercies are cruel, they're harsh. They trouble their own souls. They neglect their own flesh and blood. Look at 1 Timothy 5.8. 1 Timothy 5.8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and he's worse than an infidel. Worse than an infidel. Balaam cruelly beat his donkey in Numbers 22, 22. Judah's tender mercy to Joseph was to sell him. Genesis 37, 26. Adon Bezek and 70, had 70 kings without thumbs or big toes under his table. Judges 1 and verse 7. Nahash accepted surrender on terms of putting out all the eyes, 1 Samuel 11, 1. Joab murdered Abner and Absalom in cold blood, 2 Samuel 3, 39. Rehoboam scorned his own willing nation in 2 Chronicles 10, 1. Jezebel murdered Naboth for a mere vineyard, 1 Kings 21, 1. Pilate offered to chastise 
our innocent Jesus before letting him go, Luke 23, 13. And the Romans broke legs to end crucifixion, John 19, 31. Righteous Job tenderly cared for his servants and the poor in Job 31, 13. But his wife cruelly stabbed him in his darkest hour of need in Job 2, 9. David mercifully spared Saul's life, 1 Samuel 24, 1. But his daughter Michal scorned David's finest worship of God in 2 Samuel 6, 20. Joseph mercifully protected Mary, though horribly hurt, Matthew 1, 19. But Judah forgot his promise to the lonely and the needy Tamar in Genesis 38 verse 11 a wicked man will treat his wife harshly he will work too many hours he will yell at the children stay at cheap hotels on vacation and forget to feed the fish he'll slander his enemies think romance is infeminate neglect to train his children expect the family to appreciate his personal preferences criticize his wife to others not take his mother, mother-in-law out to eat. You see that? Yeah. That's what a bad guy will do. Remember that. Remember that I said that. Next time your husband acts up just a little bit. He'll repeat stories about a co-worker, treat his daughters like sons, or he'll clam up and avoid talking to the family. That's a wicked man. If I have covered or touched on anything in your life and any one of those, you need to take care of it. A wicked woman will gossip about the neighbor, criticize her mother-in-law, defraud her husband, and we all know what that means, overprotect her sons from boy activities, overprotect her sons from boy activities, overprotect her sons from boy activities, Overprotect her sons from boy activities. Did you understand that? Do I need to say it again? Overprotect her sons from boy activities. I cannot, do not like to see a mother, a woman say, oh, he can't get dirty. Oh, he can't touch that worm and put it on a hook. He's liable to impale himself. A gun? My little Leroy would never touch a gun. I've heard that. And I've got little Leroy out there with a shotgun in his hand. Let me, let me look at me. You look at me real hard. You better let somebody like me take little Leroy and show him how to shoot rather than him pick up one not understanding what it can do. That's boy activities. Wicked woman will fret over a million of things, millions of things to get done, nag rather than punish the children, correct her husband frequently, worry too much about details, and order veggie pizza. <laughs> That's a wicked woman. <laughs> Let every melancholy, introverted masochist read these words. Are you ready? The merciful man doeth good to his own soul. This is, reason, this is what I was coming to a little earlier. The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. That's Proverbs eleven seventeen. You hear what I just said? 
I'm going to say it again. Let every melancholy, introverted masochist read these words. A merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. Your self-reflection and negative thoughts are wrong, and they are destructive. You think badly of yourself all the time. They're destructive not only to you, but to your family. To your family. They destroy you, those around you, by your sullenness, withdrawal, bad attitude, critical outlook, or harsh words. How merciful is a quiet man who clams up? Question. The strong leader who yells frequently at home? Question. How merciful? The thoughtful man who remembers offenses and harbors bitterness? How merciful is he? The funny man who laughs all the time and only thinks about himself, how merciful is he? The zealous man who cannot forgive quickly and completely, how merciful is he? These persons are not merciful at all, not in the least. Mercy is not compromising God's standards, not at all. 1 Kings 20, I, did I give you that or not? I can't remember. Did I give you 1 Kings 20, 31 through 34? Did I? Okay, put that up there. And his servant said unto him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Peradventure he will save thy life. So they girded sackcloth on their loins, put ropes on their heads, and came to the king of Israel and said, Thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. And he said, Is he yet alive? He is my brother. He is my brother. Now the men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him and did hastily catch it. And they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go ye, bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came forth to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said unto him, The cities which my father took from thy father I will restore, and thou shalt make streets for thee in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. Then said Ahab, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. All right. Is that the last part of it, isn't it? Okay. All right. Now, now that, that shows you that that is, a, that, that is a, a merciful, non-compromising thing to do. It's not compromising God's standards. They, they include infinite mercy, and we do not have the wisdom or the right to modify them. Mercy compromises our standards, our opinions, our feelings, our habits, and our convenience for others. Do you understand that mercy to us, to us as individuals, to our flesh, compromises our standards? A standard of a man, of a human being. Mercy is not a part of what we're made of. We don't live, we are not, we are not born that way. We have a tendency to want to be selfish. You look at a child. A child is not necessarily merciful unless you teach them to be merciful. A child is selfish unless you teach them otherwise. That's not a part of our nature. It's against everything. It's against our opinions, our feelings, our habits, and, and our convenience for others. We will receive the mercy and compassion we give, so it is important we show kindness and gentleness toward ourselves and towards others. We only receive the amount of mercy that we extend. You, do you, I, I don't think a lot of people realize that. If you feel like no one's given you mercy, it's because you've not given any mercy. You only receive the mercy that you give. 
It's, it's the same concept with giving tithes and offerings. You can never expect to prosper when you rob God. When you rob God, you're a thief. All thieves are thrown into the lake of fire. You cannot expect to prosper unless you give. You cannot expect mercy unless you extend mercy. Mercy is only given to those who give it. Tender words are not enough. The Bible says that we need to open our bowels in compassion. That is, that is talking about our heart. In Colossians 3.12 and 1 John 3.17. And also... Uh, uh, the actions of that is in James 2.16. Our Lord showed his tender mercies from, from hungry crowds to a single grieving widow, from an untouchable leper to a despairing Mary Magdalene. Uh, you can see all this in, in the Gospels, and he is compassionate and merciful to every one of us every day. Every day we receive mercy from him. Every day we don't deserve to even live. But we, we do anyway. We receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, resurrection power. That is a result of mercy. A result of mercy. Proverbs 12, verse 11. He that tilleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that followeth vain persons is void of understanding. Now, anybody that's ever done any of it, they can say this. Farming is a real job. It's not all this stuff that we call work. It's not really work. This is a real job. It is boring. It is hard. It is hot. And it is dirty. It requires patient waiting for crops to grow. Now, this is what he recently is using this. And it has no glamour, no fancy titles, no fine suits, and no big meetings. It involves long hours, manual labor, and much practical wisdom. Risk, no paid vacations, and only modest financial reward. Farming requires self-discipline, self-motivation, and it, provide, it provides food to sustain human life and provide eating pleasures. Farming is a real job. It's a good job. In a perfect world without sin, God gave Adam the work of dressing the Garden of Eden. And in a sinful world, his first son was a tiller of the ground, Genesis 2.15. The Lord gave man the internal knowledge of agricultural wisdom thousands of years before our inventions. You can read that in Isaiah 28.23. And he blessed men with great returns from tilling the ground and sowing seeds. But it is hard work. Does that sound too much like work to most of you? It does to me. None of us really want to be a dumb farmer, do we? Just an old dumb farmer. Can't imagine getting dirty every day, never becoming someone important. If that be the case, that's the way you feel, then there's a lot of vain people out there ready to help you out. Okay? Because just follow me. Just follow me. A lot of vain persons want to help you out. Call a number in the business opportunities section of your newspaper. You go home tonight, just get your business opportunities, call one of those numbers. They'll help you out. And you can learn hard work is for idiots. That's what they'll tell you. Don't have to work hard. You can do it all from home. <laughs> all right. Think about it. They have, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's just hard work for idiots. And I can get you started getting rich this afternoon. They have a business opportunity for you to be financially independent. They have a little known investment that yields ten times what working peons like farmers get. Ten times. Everybody just needs to shout hooray. We all got business opportunities. We all got this. Pro Every one of us in here can go call someone tonight 
and they'll be there in the morning to get you started. And you'll be able to make 10 times what a farmer makes. Think about it. Instead of working hard and getting dirty, you can drive a sports car. You can use a cell phone all the time to arrange your next business and sales meeting. After all, if you can get 1,000 people working for you, trying to become you by buying your overpriced product, then you don't have to work at all. That sounds great, doesn't it? That's the American dream. So help yourself to the American dream. But what does Solomon say? Now, what does the, the, the wisest man in the world say about this kind of thing? What does, what, what does the man who knew more about economic success, now you have to agree that he did, about economic success than any ten men living today, what does God say? They say that the farmer will have plenty to eat. He will be successful. And the greedy fellow looking for easy street is an empty-headed fool and a loser. He's going to down to poverty. And this rule of economic wisdom applies to every honest and useful profession. So what is the secret to success from this proverb? What is the secret to success? What is this proverb teaching? Get up, go to a boring job, do it well, forget foolish ideas of how easy money or business opportunities. Plowing your field will put you far ahead of men chasing dreams of easy riches and high return investments. Consider tilling which is plowing and preparing land for raising crops. It is done in the spring along with a major investment in seed and fertilizer. When there is no evidence of false success, absolutely nothing is going to promise you what's going to come up in that field. No promise at all. It is boring, hard, hot, dirty, and you must live on credit or savings for six months, getting financially poorer every day while your back grows sore every day. But one day you come home sweaty and filthy to discover an escape. A vain person in a fine suit driving a new BMW is there to charm you and your wife about his exciting life with a business opportunity. He says, join us. Surely you don't want to be a loser all your life. Sign up to be a distributor. Buy my overpriced product and get rich. Now you think about this. I mean, you can see how people can fall for it. This poor farmer doing all that he does, no promise of getting anything in the fall. He's got a big investment. You've got this guy driving a BMW coming up and saying, just be a distributor. I know some of you probably looking at me and you're thinking, you just don't know what you're talking about, brother. Yes, I do. I have evangelists come through here all the time with the same junk. And they're just trying to, trying to get ahead, trying to do the same thing. And, you know, you look at them and you try to tell them this stuff is not going to work. And they look at you like you have just crucified Jesus anew. That's what they look at you. Because all they know is they're trying to get somebody under them. This stuff does not work, folks. The only person that, that it works for is a person that's lying to you. And everybody say amen. Oh, no, no one. You know what? I got a bunch of people that believe that junk. Do you believe that? Say amen then. Amen. All right. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the only way to still get ahead is working hard? Amen. All right. Now, I believe, I know that's the truth. But now look what this guy does. He says, so you attend the sales meeting. This is what happens to the farmer. He's out there breaking his back. He attends the sales meeting. After a prayer, the pledge to the flag and singing God Bless America, a beautiful couple claiming to be millionaires prance across the stage flashing Rolexes and photos of their fancy houses. Beaming with happiness, they tell about quitting farming, spending half the year sailing their custom yacht in the Caribbean. So what is vain about this success? They don't show 50,000 poor distributors in their downline who were extorted into buying overpriced products to pay for the yacht. 
through high-pressure tactics, product misrepresentation, promises of quick riches. You know, everybody just needs to grow up. Just needs to grow up. Overpriced soap doesn't make anyone rich unless someone lies somewhere about something. If you believe their story, become a billionaire like Bill Gates, or better yet, play the lottery. You have more chance winning a lottery than owning a yacht. And I don't want you to play the lottery. 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 I want you to play the lottery as well. What about Bill Gates, a billionaire? You know, I, I spoke about this the other day, Ecclesiastes 9-11. Time and chance happen to every man. You know, no one really understands why some people can do well. But we also don't understand some of the background. None of us really know. And one thing's for sure, the man did work hard. He worked very, very hard. And uh, if the truth was known about what he really had to do, you would probably find out that many of you wouldn't put in the hours that he put in to get where he's at. And for every Bill Gates, there are 10 million men who make an average income and 1 million losers who hurt their families chasing the illusionary success. But you can reduce chance and harness time for plenty of bread by working your farm each day and trusting the Lord to apply his rain and sunshine for the harvest. In all labor, like working a farm, there's a profit. But the talk of the lips, the rah-rah stories of get-rich schemes tend only to poverty. Many lose money, peace, and reputation, reputations chasing success. Though news stories are daily revealing more boom and bust businesses and investments, the only reason more schemes have not yet gone bust is God's judgment of deceiving prosperity. You'd be surprised at the amount of things that have gone under. Now, not all of them, and I'm not that naive to believe that, but you'd be surprised in the last two years some of the businesses that have gone under were not what I'm talking about. You know, things that have put people uh, under, put people out of work, were not real. You'd be surprised how many of these things did not work at all, never were intended to work. So in these cases, in this case, when it comes, you know, there's an old saying, the fool and his money are soon parted. So in the case of your finances, skepticism is wisdom. Only fools believe stories of easy money and super investments. Things sounding too good to be true are just that, too good to be true. Only fools believe them. Wise men prove all things. First Thessalonians 5.21. It's actually what I said. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. What are you talking about? Hold fast to your farm. Hold fast to your farm. The vain persons will resent your, your objections for their conceit is too great. They've, they have seen success. They are copying their mentors who rent Rolexes and lease sport cars, and they expect you to foolishly believe their story like they did others. There's no secret to success. It's only by hard work, self-denial, patience, time, God's mercy. There's no free lunch or even a cheap lunch. Lunch is by, is by getting wheat from the ground, meat from the herd. But vain persons hate skeptics for they need you to join quickly and easily to make their next house payment. That's all this is about. Avoid vain persons who are always looking and talking about business opportunities. So what is a vain person? Question, simply someone trying to tell you there is an easy way to make a living. Following vain persons is reading their materials, listening to their ideas, thinking about their investments. Go plow another acre instead of listening. That's the key. 
Starting as a trash collector and working hard with basic principles of godly wisdom will always bring more success than following another bright idea for easy riches. All right, it's going to come up behind me, something that's good about the hard work. Have you got that? Get it up there for me, would you? Hard work plus savings plus safe investment plus patience equals prosperity. You see that? Let's look at that again. Hard work plus savings. You know, <clears throat> probably this is, I should preach this one on Sunday night before there's more people here. Because probably the people who need to hear this the most are not here. Hard work plus savings plus safe investment plus patience. That last one right there. You see, we, we understand hard work and saving safe. We understand that. We're all for that. But the patience part of it. We want to invest on Monday and see something come out by Friday. But it's patience along with the other three that equals prosperity. And that's the only way it's ever going to happen. Now let's look at the next one. She doesn't have this one. Because really what I just said, the prosperity, that is, this is tilling your land. That this is what causes, this is what tilling your land really means. But business opportunities plus super investment plus rah-rah stories equals poverty. And this is vanity. All of us need to think about this. And we all are familiar with the Ponzi schemes. And if you don't know what one is, you better learn <laughs> what it is. Stock tips, buying real estate. Nothing down, insider information, business opportunities, sure thing, commodities, trading swamp land in Florida, ground floor opportunities, miracle products, multi-level marketing programs of all kinds and other lies to relieve fools of their money, especially in a greedy and excessive generation like the present one. Grow up, buy a farm, get to work. You'll be far ahead in the long run. Now, for those of you that think I'm literally talking about a farm, I'm saying get a job. Okay. All right, get a job. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying get a job. And those of you that have a hard time getting up and getting to work on time, you better get over it. You better get over it. It still works. And I tell you what, in the, in the economy that we're living in right now, it, it is gonna, it's a make and break. It, I, it, the people who are going to make it are the ones who get up early and get there. The people who are constantly late are the ones going to lose their jobs. It's just, it's just weeding out is what it's about, what's happening. And uh, it, it's sad, but there's too many Christians who believe that they shouldn't have to, oh, do I need to get on this, God? Should I? Should I say it? I've said it before, so what difference does it make? Because I've been on the other end of this, and I've had, when, when I was working a secular job, I had Christians working for me, and they expected special favors just because you was a Christian, especially if you were their pastor. The thing is, I believe the Scripture not being slothful in business, fervent in spirit. But see, what that is saying is actually this. You, if you're slothful in business, then you are not fervent in spirit. So if I'm going to be a fervent in spirit person, I can't be slothful in business. That means that if I am going to lead a congregation, that I can't be slothful in business. You understand that? And if you're working for me in a secular job and you, you are stealing from the employee or employer and I don't fire you, kick your royal red rump, excuse me, up the hill into your car, then I'm being slothful in business. Do, you not, do I need to say that again? Do I need to say that again? You are robbing someone and taking advantage of a brother. 
if, he, if you work for someone in the church and you're not giving them your best, if anything, you should be showing Christian values more than at any other time. Do I need to say, do you want me to put that up here? Do you want me to put royal red rump? Well, we just put triple R and you would know what that is. All right. I know this is hard for you, but look at me real good. Love your job and thank the Lord for it every day. Work hard and faithfully at it. You'll be satisfied with plenty of bread, and you'll see the vain persons in poverty. That's exactly what happens here, and it will happen. You know, itching ears call for a shiny new form of godliness, according to 2 Timothy 3 and 5. But continuing in the old paths will fill our souls with bread, 2 Timothy 3, 14. That's exactly, you know, people are constantly looking, got those ears out there looking for that get-rich-quick scheme. It'll never work for them. My goodness, I thought I'd get to, I really want to get to the last one of these. Should I just jump? No, I'll just see. I think I will jump. Now let's go to Proverbs 12, 18, and then I'll jump from there. There is that speaketh like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise itself. When you end a conversation, let me ask, if you, when you end a conversation, is the other party bleeding or growing? Are they bleeding or are they growing? Do others love talking with you because they know they will enjoy it and profit by it? Or do they avoid your painful words? Do some leave you bleeding? Or do some leave you growing? Death and life, the Bible says, in Proverbs 18, 21, are in the power of the tongue. We can cut a person with our words like the piercing of a sword, or we can heal and nurture them with our words. Which are you the best at? And which are you known for? What do you want for your speech? The tongue is an unruly evil. It is a world of iniquity. It defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature. It is a fire from hell, and it is full of deadly poison. Wild animals can be tamed, but the tongue can never be tamed. If it could be tamed, we would be perfect. And God ignores modern self-esteem and damns our tongues, and that's exactly what he does according to James 3, 1 through 12. There are two kinds of persons in speech. Some people only know cutting words, and some are generally or always gracious. Speech can be destructive or it can be healthful. Christians should always speak graciously with only a pinch of salt, biting criticism, seasoning, seasoning it, Colossians 4, 7. This balance, 98% graciousness, is how we speak to please God. Biting criticism and sarcasm outside this balance are wrong. Look at Colossians 4, 6. Not Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be always with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. 98% grace. 2% salt. Now you all know that's how salt works anyway. You don't just, you don't take a, you take a two-pound steak and cover it with two pounds of salt, do you? You know, it's always just a, just a touch of salt that you need. Some of us eat too much salt, but that's a different story. Our speech should be a 
tree of life to others, Proverbs 15 and 4. And it should be appreciated for its sweetness and its health, Proverbs 16, 24. And its beauty, Proverbs 25 and 11. If you have few friends and family members who seek you out for conversation, you need to examine your speech. If people don't want to talk to you, then what are you talking about? What are you doing? Backbiting, slandering, whispering, tail-bearing, which create deep, piercing wounds should never be a part of our speech, and they prove an unfaithful spirit. Jesus said evil speech is murder in Matthew 5, 21. Foolish and unlearned questions, debate, railings, answering again are all sins. Look at Romans 1, 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate. Dis- this, I, you know, I've, I've read this several times, but I, it hit me the other day. Murder, debate. Now, the debate is what you do with your tongue. Deceit, malignity, and whispers. Two things you do with your tongue. Placed in there with murder, maliciousness, envy, fornication, and wickedness. Do you see that? Do you see that? It's saying the tongue can be as bad as the rest of this. Now, 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 you folks get all bent out of shape if somebody commits fornication in here or adultery. But if somebody just flat tells a big lie to you or somebody, you just kind of blow it off. Now, you, you stop thinking about what I just said. If I was to pull up and pull my gun out and shoot Eldar right now, you'd throw me in jail. But if I reached down and said, you know, that, that, that Eldar is a knucklehead, you know, that's okay. Well, it's, it's okay for me to, you know. You understand what I'm saying? We, we you know, we, we, really, we really focus on one of these items, but yet we see that, that criticizing, debating, and whispering, and telling stories and tales about other people is just as bad as murder. Well, we can't help it, Brother Robertson. It's just a, you know, well, the Bible says tongue no man can tame. But you know what? It didn't say God couldn't tame it. And if you've got the baptism of the Holy Ghost, God should be taming that thing. 1 Peter 3.9. 1 Peter 3.9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you are there unto called that you should inherit a blessing. Not rendering evil for evil, not railing for railing. If someone's railing on you, Arguing with you, you shouldn't argue back. Good speech is at the right time, Proverbs 15, 23, with gracious, 22 and 11, and acceptable words, 10, 32. So let us be slow to speak, James 1, 29, and search out good works, Proverbs 15, 28. Our Lord Jesus would could verbally destroy Pharisees and other fools of his day. Matthew twenty two forty six. 46. But he generally chose gracious speech that amazed the hearers. That's what he did. That's how he operated. I want to jump that one. Yeah, I may not get to it, but I, I got to do it. Proverbs twelve twenty five. Heaviness in the heart of a man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. Your mouth can do more than swallow food. <laughs> a lot of us didn't know that, did it? It can also cheer up a heavy heart, but you must learn kind and complimentary, encouraging and faithful words to do so. 
Are you able to spot a heavy heart, a stooped heart? And do you know what good and gladdening words it needs? Do you use good words to comfort and encourage people? Good words. I, I know this may be basic stuff, but boy, I tell you, I, I, I listen, I hear. I hear a lot. And, and saying good words and trying to be an encouragement to, to people is such a lost art. We are so caught up, and in, in, in all of us are, including myself, so caught up in life, sometimes you just walk right past somebody that's got a heavy heart. And if you've got any discerning at all, any discerning of the Spirit, any discernment, you can see that. But do we stop and give that kind word? We stop and, and pat that person on the shoulder, hug them, whatever, just to let them know that you see they've got a heavy heart. Because most of us are too selfish and we're too preoccupied with our own lives to notice others on their, or their problems. But, but most do not have the affection or concern for others to say or write something kind and helpful. They are wrapped up in their own thoughts and it does not cross their minds to serve others. The rest are simply too fearful and unlearned in the art. This particular passage does not justify heavy hearts Saints should be the most contented and joyful people on the face of the earth. According to 1 Peter 1.8, look at, that, look at that with me. Whom having not seen, you love, and whom though, not, uh, though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what we should be full of, joy unspeakable and full of glory. And though a great men are cast down at times, they do not allow such feelings to overwhelm them. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. We may be cast down, but we're not going to stay down. We may be perplexed, but we're not going to continue to be perplexed. Understand that, yes, we do have our troubles. Yes, we do have problems, but we're not going to stay at that place. Telling another person. <laughs> ah, should I say that? Now, nah, let me back up. I'll, I'll leave that one for later. You know, but if we consider, if we consider those rightly cast down, we have an object of pity deserving our attention and affection. A heavy heart carries weighty burdens that, that makes it stoop with a heavy load. It is a soul pressed down by the cares, circumstances, and the troubles of life. Now, I'm going to tell you something that King Lemuel said, but you've got to remember that, that we don't, uh, we've got what he is talking about in us. Okay, understand. Now, King Lemuel, and I'll have to cover that eventually in Psalm or in Proverbs 31, says uh, actually King Lemuel's mother recommended wine as a possible cure for the infirmity that we're talking about being downcast. But we got new wine in us, so the Holy Ghost should take care of the desire to get loaded. Okay? That's what the Holy Ghost should do. It is cruel to dance around those cast down, and it's like taking away a coat in cold weather, according to Proverbs 25, 20. This, this cheap affection does more than harm than good. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. Don't you hate for people to say that when you're really down? Cheer up, man. You know, live in the sunshine. Well, let's see what you're like next week. Really? Now, I have to say, granted, sometimes you get the same person who looks the same way and does the same thing over and over and over again. You'd like to either hit them with a board or do something. 
because there's got to be some good time sometime in your life. Every church service you come and you look like you were baptized in pickle juice or something wrong with you. All right? There is something wrong with you. You know, I come in here, we've got joy in my heart. If I don't have any joy, I'll have it when I leave. Because I come in here and we need to uplift one another. We need to worship God. And we need to realize when we begin to look around just how great God really is to us, each and every one of us. And we should never stay cast down. That shouldn't happen. But again, uh, you know, these cheer up and live in the sunshine are good words and they work sometimes. But men with real burdens and an oppressed spirit need to hear more. It's better, according to Paul's wisdom, that we weep with them that weep, not dance. Romans 12, verse 15. Romans 12, verse 15, and it says, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. There's a time to rejoice when people are rejoicing, and there's a time to weep with them that weep. If someone has just lost someone that's special to them, a you know a family member, something you don't you know you don't tell them to to you know to buck up. You're you're going to make it. It's all right. And I know there are times when you see someone who is it was dying that are they're in a great deal of pain and you can you can say you know yes you know in that case if they are full of the holy ghost yes they they, they're no longer in pain yes they're in a better place we can do that if we know the person we're talking to but that's not really the right thing to do to everybody it's not the best thing to do to everybody and it's like some of you that and i'm going to cover this you do not say to a woman who has just lost a child stillbirth or miscarried, that you can always have another one. You do not say that. They have lost somebody. All right. So I've jumped on everybody. Good. Good. Telling another person that they look poorly is a gift of a sadistic monsters. Okay? The cruelty sounds like this. You look horrible this morning. Do you have clinical dysentery? I read that it infected many this past week. In fact, my mother-in-law was a mess. <laughs> How are you coping with dysentery? You know, not a bull in a china shop. This person is a pit bull in a nursery. That is exactly what this kind of person is. You don't say things like that. For the real problem was an angry and a bitter spouse that had temporarily broken the heart of, their, of this person. You know, you don't tell them that. <laughs> got you got clinical dysentery. You know, you don't do that. A whole book of the Bible describes Job's three self-righteous friends who did not have a single good word to gladden his heavily weighed down heart. Instead of good words to comfort and strengthen him, they joined together in accusing him of hypocrisy, hypocrisy and secret sins. This is what they had to deal with. Now, this, this is, there's a right time and a right thing for anything. I'm going to jump on. I, uh, I, I just know that you appreciate this and I want to do this one this is the last one of Proverbs 12 and um, I've been looking forward to it uh, I'll get into 13 the slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting but the substance of a diligent man is precious maybe a lot of you won't appreciate it, but a few of you will okay finishing a job is diligence and virtue. Slothful men start projects but do not complete them. Follow me. 
we're going to use the analogy that Solomon used. They enjoy hunting even if early and difficult, but they lose their energy and focus when they get home and face dressing and processing a kill. A diligent man, on the other hand, salvages all the meat, does not rest until it is wrapped neatly in the freezer. Now, hunters take pains to prepare for deer season. You follow me? They sight in the rifles, shotguns. They scout land. They uh, secure tree stands. Uh, they carefully select clothing and equipment. They rise while it's still cold and it is dark, carry their stand deep into the woods, fix it in a tree, wait for the deer. And having shot one, they rejoice with friends, field dress it, drag it to their truck, where they proudly drive through town at the, at, to the praise of all their buddies. Now, the slothful man is working well so far. Because the slothful man, he doesn't mind that part of it. That's okay. But when he gets home, his energy disappears. The carcass fills him with dread. There is so much work to do. So he gives it to his neighbor with great generosity. Or he throws it in the dumpster. Or he leaves it to the dogs. Or he just simply lets it hang in the garage till it rots. You'd be surprised. Then he orders pizza and relaxes. <laughs> He's had a hard day. He deserves a good meal. <laughs> and he wants a nap, of course, so he's got to have a nap. He doesn't even clean his guns. Now that, to me, is a definite slothful man. <sighs> you won't find a speck of dust on any weapon that I have in various places in my house, so never, never, ever second-guess me. <laughs> All right. Never. That's just the way that, it, that it's supposed to be. I have a hard time with people who don't finish. My wife drives, I drive her crazy. If I go fishing, I bring my boat in. I do, if I come in at midnight, I will clean my boat. You know, you clean it. You don't let it set. You don't let crud set in it. There's been a few times that I've not left it as good as I should have, but I always get to it quickly. So, you know, a diligent man, you know, he's, he's, he's different. He, he enjoys the hunt. But he knows it is for, the purp for a purpose, and he dresses, butchers, and processes every bit of meat for future use. He neatly labels and packages it for convenient use, not by my wife, but by his wife. And he carefully cleans his gun to preserve its value. He is thankful for the gift of the deer. He labors to take full advantage of the Lord's blessings. He takes of the day's venison and shares it with his family for supper. That's what he does. Now, what a difference there is between these two men. The slothful man cannot finish a project to realize the profit of labor, but the diligent man sees the precious value in finishing every job and properly caring for every asset and all income. Sloth is foolish, wasteful, and destructive. Diligence is wise, resourceful, and productive. We don't hear enough about sloth and diligence. We don't hear enough. You know, it, it used to be you were taught that when you were a child, when you were being raised, but now we've got people teaching and have a clue about any of these things. They don't have a clue. You finish a job, and even something that you enjoy, it's a habit that you get into. No matter what you do, you get into the habit of finishing. You finish. You complete the job. Now, I know that if I... I, 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 have, uh, I have been <clears throat> around a while, and you know, you... I can come into a certain place and look at something that doesn't look finished to me, and maybe to somebody else it's finished. 
Now, maybe that's all perception. But to me, it's the complete job is you walk in and it's clean and everything's in order and it's placed back in its, pla its, its right place. And I don't have the neatest garage in the world. I don't. But if you have one thing out of place, I know it's not, not right. One thing. My wife's got a, something she's working on in one corner of my garage and it drives me insane. It drives me insane because I've got other things that are behind it that I need to get to, so I have to move this stuff out to get to it, and that really bothers me. You know, I'm used to walking right to where I want something and picking it up. I, you're saying you're, 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 you're nuts, you probably, but it's, it's okay. I'm a diligent person. Sloth is foolish. I'm diligent. The preacher said, He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. Proverbs 18 and 9. But the man in our proverb is both. His slothfulness caused him to waste God's good favor. He did not even have their, the, the noble work ethic of Esau. Esau prepared the game. So he didn't even have the noble work ethic of Esau. Every man, every woman, every child, every day faces this issue on the job, at home, at school, with numerous aspects of life. Needed projects are started, but they're seldom completed. How many of you have a hard time completing a project? Be honest. Oh, my. Well, you have to. It's easy. It's easy to just get off because you get, you get bored with it. You get tired of doing it. So what you, the best thing to do is not start a big job if you can't do it. Don't start it. Just don't do that. I mean, stop and think that. It, it, you know, maybe there was an extreme that I gave you, but there have been. I have seen people who have left deer, if you would, hanging in a garage way past the time they should have left it hanging in the garage. Now, you know, and if you're going to go out and you're going to kill the poor varmint, poor baby Bambi, then at least eat it. Or get it to someone who will eat it and appreciates it, not just someone to take it off your hands. A good preaching? Thank you. Have you started any projects that you should finish this day to be productive and value the blessings of God in your life? Or will you squander his goodness by leaving a task unfinished? The cost of, of labor partly paid, but the full profit still waiting for the diligent man. There is a joy in a job well done when it is finished. Hear me? There's a joy in the job when it is finished. Test this wisdom. If you continue with partial efforts, the Lord will withdraw the blessings of giving a deer. Parent, it is your duty to teach your children the self-discipline of finishing every project they start. This requires training, follow-up, punishment, but it will yield successful and noble children in the future. They will never be successful in any aspect of life if you allow them to begin projects without finishing them. Teach them this wisdom of Solomon. Wait for the training to bear precious fruit. Here's also a picture of a slothful Christians. They hear the same word preached to others. Some do not prepare. It falls by the wayside, and then the devil snatches it away. Some may even receive it joyfully, but they allow it to go to waste, having little root in themselves. The dread of even minor persecution causes some to wither away. You can read all about this in Matthew 13, 19 through 21. You can read what I just said. It tells it in detail. Only those who continue to bear fruit are true disciples. How many times have you been graciously given or diligently took conviction from a sermon but later let it slip away? Lord, save us from such a waste. Grace in your soul that stirs conviction is precious indeed, and do not squander it.
Run with it now. Do not stop pressing for the prize of God's high calling until you get to the end of the road. It is a fact taught by our Lord that the violent take the kingdom of force. You know, uh, Sister Evan said something here. I want you to look at Matthew 11, verse 12, because what she said really fits with this particular scripture. Matthew 11, verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. We sometimes simply have to make ourselves do things that we don't want to do. We have to make ourselves finish the job. We have to force ourselves. If we don't, we're going to be hurting. <clears throat> you know, it's terrible thought to repent of our sins, be baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, then lose our full reward. And men will seek to beguile us of our reward. So we must earnestly contend, according to Jude 1 and 3, for the faith. This, there is a war for our souls, which we must fight to the finish, lest we become castaways through spiritual slothfulness. For this purpose, we assemble with others to be provoked to finish our course. Look at Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. I'm going to finish with this. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another. Look at this word provoke. We need to provoke one another. We do that in a, a good way. Provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assemblies. Notice, they placed this. This was a, a verse on top of the verse. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see that day approaching. Why do we come together? We come together to, get, to, to worship God. That is one of the main reasons to hear the word of God. Why do we need the word of God? To provoke us, to exhort us. And we are to provoke one another to good works. Much the more as you see that day approaching, the closer we come to sunset, the more we need to provoke and exhort one another. And the more you need to be a church. Lord bless you. Stand with me. Deacons, please don't forget, go right back to my office. I'm not going to have time to do anything else. I've got to go right back to the, those poor fellows. They need, they need a guiding hand. All right, let's raise our hands unto the Lord. Thank you, Joe, Lord, for all that you've done, your blessings, your goodness, your mercy. We love you, appreciate you. Ask God that you would touch us, strengthen us. Help us to finish that which we have begun, I ask now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.